Today, we're going to dig into an interesting doctrine, the sovereignty of God. We're going to dig into the fact that we serve a God who is in control, a God for whom nothing happens by accident, a God who can and will fix everything in the end. We're going to start, though, with the scripture memory verse. So we're going to start by reciting Titus 2.1. So join with me in reciting Titus 2.1. Titus 2.1. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Titus 2.1. As we are digging into sound doctrine this month, I want to talk about God's sovereignty. And before I define sovereignty for you, I want to show you what the Baptist faith and message says regarding God and what is related here to sovereignty. So let's look at this statement from the Baptist faith and message on God and his sovereignty. It says, God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and his perfect knowledge extends to all things, past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. To him, we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. That's God. That's the God we serve. Let me read to you what uh, Paul Tripp says about sovereignty. In defining sovereignty, Paul Tripp says, God, the creator of all things, upholds, directs, and governs all creatures, actions, and things. From the greatest to the least, by his wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. In his ordinary providence, God makes use of means, yet is free to work and without, above and against them at his pleasure. In other words, sovereignty of God means that God is in control at all times. He is orchestrating. He is directing. I personally love to take things apart and sometimes put them back together. (laughs) Have you ever taken something apart and had pieces left over? What I love about taking things apart is seeing how these little tiny pieces fit in like a pin. If you ever see me in a meeting, chances are I will take apart a pin in the middle of the meeting Um, because I just fidget with my hands and I end up pulling things apart and looking at all the little pieces and carrying into it and seeing how it all fits together. But I love that because I love taking apart the world I live in, piece by piece in my mind, and seeing how God's perfect plan is fitting these little pieces together, just like a piece of engineering where each piece matters. Even if I think, well, that seems useless, that seems like a spare part, it's not. That's God's sovereignty. Every little piece fits. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah 45, I think, is one of the most profound declarations of God's sovereignty. As you're turning in your Bibles to Isaiah 45, I want to tell you a little bit about the book of Isaiah. Uh, The book of Isaiah is a long book. If you've tried reading it, it can be hard. It's 66 chapters. And it gets really, really dense. Isaiah himself prophesied 
uh, probably one of the longest periods of time, over more than 40 years, during the reigns of King Uzziah, King Jotham, King Ahaz, and King Hezekiah. And if you want to learn more about those, I suspect Dick Clark will be covering them in his Sunday school class in the next coming months. Long period of time that Isaiah prophesied, and he wrote extensively in his book. Within the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 48 are about a promise of restoration. You see, Isaiah prophesied that the Babylonian empire would come in, conquer Israel, and move them out. But Isaiah further prophesied in chapters 40 through 48 that one day God would restore Israel, that he would bring them back to their land. Even though they would one day be conquered by Babylon, they would later be restored. And that's the key prophecy that Isaiah is speaking about here in chapter 45, where we're going to be reading. I want to tell you one other tidbit of information. Isaiah 45 is the thorn in the flesh for secular scholars. You see, it's too accurate. Isaiah 45 is so accurate in its prophecy that most secular scholars say that it must have been written hundreds of years later and added to the Bible to make it look accurate. I will tell you, um, this is actually what I did some major uh, research on. I don't believe that they have a foot to stand on there. Isaiah 45 fits really well in the Bible, in the book of Isaiah, but it is the thorn in the flesh to those who would deny God's providence. So we're going to be in Isaiah 45 today, and we're going to read the whole chapter, but we're going to start with verses 1 through 7. So read with me in Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 7. And as we read, remember, the idea here is Israel has been deported or will be deported, and one day they will be restored. Starting in verse 1. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places so that you may know that I am the Lord the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor. Though you do not acknowledge me, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. What I want you to see in these seven verses is that even when you don't know it, God is sovereign. Even when you don't know it, God is sovereign. You see, God's sovereignty means that God owns and directs as he desires. Isaiah wrote Isaiah 45, uh, based on most reasonable timelines of the Bible. Isaiah wrote this 150 years before Cyrus took the throne of the Medo-Persian Empire. 
150 years before, Isaiah wrote. And what did he write? That the Lord said to his anointed, to Cyrus, that's a pretty strong statement there, 150 years before the man takes the throne, God calls him out by name. God's sovereignty means that he owns and directs as he desires. What he wants to do, God does. He is in control. When God says to his anointed, he's saying that Cyrus is his chosen individual to deliver Israel back to their land. 150 years. I venture to challenge that the parents of Cyrus, so Cyrus's parents uh, was King Ashan and uh, another princess from another land, not the land of Medo-Persia. I venture to argue that when they named their son Cyrus, they had no idea of who this man was going to be. God did. 150 years earlier. I venture that when Cyrus chose to attack the Babylonian empire, to dam up the river so that it would not flow through the city so they could march under the city walls and conquer the Babylonian empire, Cyrus did not know that God was appointing him to deliver Israel. In fact, Cyrus had no idea until he came across this prophecy in Isaiah. So I'll tell you more about that in just a second. In verses four and five, what really stood out to me is that God's sovereignty doesn't require you to recognize God. Look at what God says in verses four and five. He is delivering Israel for the sake of Jacob. He's summoning Cyrus by name, even though Cyrus doesn't know him. God doesn't require you to know him to be sovereign. He's still sovereign. In fact, God's sovereignty sets him apart from everything else. So here's something interesting. Uh, According to Josephus, so Josephus wrote probably almost 500 years after this. According to Josephus, Cyrus eventually did read the book of Isaiah, or it was read to him. And upon reading Chapter 45, Cyrus recognized his own name and said, wait a second, that's me. And Cyrus went so far as to say, verse 5 says that God set me apart in order, in verse 6, to return his people. And Cyrus said, I should probably do that since this God has named me by name. And so, according to Josephus, any idea of who God was. But upon reading Isaiah 45 and recognizing that God is sovereign, Cyrus said, I will act according to what God has said I would do. Right of sovereignty. Ultimately, God is creator, and he has the right of sovereignty and the desire to bless. God is in control. Verse 8 says, You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let the righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. God is creator. God is sovereign. And he desires to bless. He has the right to bless. 
So let me give you an action step. Humbly acknowledge that God is sovereign and part of your life. The story of Cyrus fascinates me. 150 years before he comes onto the scene, Isaiah writes about a man named Cyrus. Cyrus, upon recognizing that he's the one who was written about, chooses to fulfill the prophecy by sending Israel back to their own land. See, even if you don't know it, God is sovereign. Even if you don't know what the pieces of your life mean, God is sovereign. Even if you don't know why you're going through this trial or this victory, God is sovereign. And he is in control. Let's continue on, though, in verses 9 through 14. And let me sort of set the stage for verses 9 through 14. I, uh, if you read between the lines as to what's going on, it seems like as Isaiah is making this prophecy about Cyrus, somebody raises their hand and says, um, excuse me, I really don't want to be carried off to Babylon. Can we just forego this whole mess? And verses 9 through 14 is Isaiah's response to that question. So let's read. Isaiah 45, starting in verse 9. It says, Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but pot shards among the pot shards on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, What are you making? Does your work say, The potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, What have you begotten? Or to a mother, What have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker. Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hand stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. But not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord says. The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and those tall Sabaeans, they will come over to you and will be yours. They will trudge behind you, coming over to you in chains. They will bow down before you and plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you, and there is no other. There is no other God. See, God's response to the person who says, question, I prefer not to go into Babylonian captivity. God's response is that even if you disagree, God is still sovereign. Even if you disagree, God is still sovereign. You see, like a potter, God has the privilege of decision. So there are actually several people in our congregation who make pots. I am not one of them. You don't want to see something that I've tried to make like that. But there are several people in our congregation who are very good at this. And the clay, I venture to say, has never actually argued with you as you're making your pot. If it does, let me know and we'll get you some help. (laughs) The clay doesn't get to argue. And that's what God says. Like a potter, God has the privilege of decision. Isaiah reminds his people that clay has one purpose and that's to be used by the potter. We have one purpose. That's to be used by God. 
Now, I will tell you that what he is making is worth being a part of. What God is ultimately making is worth our participation. But our purpose is to be used by God. The next uh, image that God uses for us is God says, like a parent, God knows best. Like a parent, God knows best. The argument that God uses next or the picture that he uses next is a child who questions his parents' choice to have another child. So imagine, you know, you've got a three-year-old and you announce to your three-year-old that you're going to be having another baby and the three-year-old says, I don't want a brother. How do mom and dad respond? Tough luck, right? (laughs) Not your call. (laughs) That's the response that God gives here. You might say, "I I don't want another brother. And your mom and dad say, great, you don't get to plan. God's children don't get to question God's plan for his family. But then in verses 12 and 13, after having sort of come down hard, right? You're just clay. I know best. God fills in a few more details in verses 12 through 13 because God tells his people that like an engineer, God has a bigger purpose in mind. Like an engineer, God has a bigger purpose in mind. Verse 14 reminds us that God is working to redeem the world. God is in the process of fixing our broken world. He's working toward a grand plan of redemption. One day, the entire world will acknowledge God's rule. One day, people will come from the ends of the earth, bring their products, products of, products of Egypt, merchandise of Cush. The picture here is these mighty nations that have these wonderful products one day will fall before the God of Israel and declare, there is no other God. There is no other God. God is working to redeem, to fix that which is broken. Like an engineer who forms little pieces that maybe make no sense to us, but make perfect sense to the engineer because of the bigger picture. So God is engineering a grand plan of redemption whereby people will one day confess that the God of Israel is the true God and there is no other. So let me give you an action step. Take a second and evaluate your own attitude. When have you foolishly disagreed with God's direction in your life? Because we all have. When have you disagreed with God's direction? Confess it. Apologize to God. Admit that God in his sovereignty has a bigger picture in mind. And what he is doing is far grander than anything we can possibly comprehend. You see, in verses 15 through 17, what we're going to see is that God's our Savior. So let's read verses 15 through 17 and put it all together. It says, Truly you are a God who has been hiding himself, the God and Savior of Israel. 
all the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgrace. They will go off into disgrace together. But Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgraced to ages everlasting. What we see here is an intermission. In Isaiah's prophecy, there's an intermission, and the intermission is here in order to remind us that the sovereign God of the universe is the Savior. The sovereign is the Savior. You see, the first thing that we see is that the path of idolatry leads to shame and disgrace. When looking at God's creation, it is possible to look out there, see some of the bad things that are happening in the world, some of the painful things in the world, and to feel like God is hiding himself, that God is missing. And our temptation when we realize or when we feel like God is hiding himself or missing, our temptation is oftentimes to erect something new as our God, an idol. Now, we don't maybe erect an idol of stone, but there's other things that we erect as idols. Activities. Activities can be good. They can become idols. Objects. They can be useful. They can become idols. God tells us in verse 16 that the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgrace. Because even though it might seem like God is hiding himself, he's not. He's preparing a path that leads to salvation. The path of the Lord, in verse 17, leads to salvation. We need to understand that God is in the business of redemption. Everything that we see is slowly being woven into a grand story of redemption. I love the fact that Isaiah says, Israel will be saved by the Lord. Isaiah wrote at a time when Christ had not come yet. So Isaiah could not possibly understand exactly what that salvation would look like. We have 2020 hindsight, and we can look back and we can see that this grand tapestry of redemption has the keystone piece in place. Jesus, God himself, came to earth, died on the cross, paying the price for sin, so that all who accept Jesus' death on the cross as their sole payment for sin can be among the redeemed. We need to take action in turning to God for salvation. Salvation does not come through an idol, no matter what that is. Salvation comes from God, the sovereign God of the universe who is weaving the pieces together to bring about ultimate restoration of his creation. Let's read verses 18 through 21. Starting in verse 18. It says, for this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret. 
from somewhere in the land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come. Assemble, you fugitives, from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Even if it seems hopeless, God is still sovereign. Even when it seems hopeless, God is still sovereign. Even in the face of death, even in the face of pain, even in the face of suffering, even in the face of conquest by the Babylonian empire, God is still sovereign. You see, verse 18 reminds us that God did not aimlessly create without a plan in mind. Have you ever played with Legos without a plan in mind? The structures don't stand very well. Or you end up spending a lot of time fixing something. Have you ever played with Legos with a plan in mind? It's very different, right? God did not create without a plan in mind. Look at the descriptions it gives of God's creative act in verse 18. It says, he created the heavens. He is God, Elohim, the ruler of heaven. He created the heavens. He rules in heaven. He fashioned the earth. The idea there is of a master builder, putting the pieces together exactly the way they're supposed to be. It says he created it to be used. God had a purpose in mind. There's purpose behind his actions. There's a plan in mind. As creator of heaven, fashioner of earth, planner of the universe, God is unlike any other. In verse 19, we're reminded that not only did God create it, but he actually revealed aspects of his plan. God did not create his world, his universe, and leave. Say, see ya, hope it works out for you. No, God actively engages his world with a plan, and he even reveals parts of his plan to his creation. We have the word of God. We know where this is going. I've read the end, and I know how it ends. It's good. The final structure is going to be good. God has a plan in mind. In verse 20, we're reminded that false gods will lead you into aimless, purposeless wandering through life's path. False gods do not have a plan in mind. The wooden idol doesn't have a plan. The car in the driveway has no plan. The big TV downstairs has no, no plan. It's not taking you somewhere at least not somewhere that you want to be. God has a plan. Ultimately, in verse 21, we see that the righteous God, our Savior, 
has a plan. Ultimately, God's sovereignty means that from the very beginning of creation, God had a plan. God knew that sin would enter his world. God knew that he would need to redeem his world by sending Jesus Christ, God himself, his son, to die on the cross. God had a plan from the beginning. And God reminds us that we are part of his plan. So let me give you an action step. Commit to taking time to learn everything you can about God's plan. If God has a plan, if we believe God has a plan, don't you want to know what that plan is instead of wandering through life, bouncing around? No, we want to know. We should know as much as we can about God's plan. And we have our Bibles. So my challenge to you is, will you commit to reading your Bible? I know I ask of this a lot of you to commit to reading your Bible, but it's because I genuinely think that there is no other commitment that will make as big of payoffs as reading your Bible. The payoffs will be great. Will you commit to daily reading your Bible? See if you can get a streak going. Can you do it for 30 days straight? Can you do it for six months straight? But commit to being in God's word, reading his plan daily. Let's read verses 22 through 25 as we sort of wrap up. God says, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before every knee, before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and will make their boast in him. Our second intermission, our closing intermission, is again, the sovereign God is Savior. Verse 22 reminds us that salvation comes from God. God says, turn to me and be saved. Turn to the salvation that God offers through Jesus Christ and be saved. Only through Christ. God is the salvation belong to God alone, but worship belongs to God alone. God is the only one who is worthy of worship. Confess that God alone is worthy of worship. Verse 24 tells us that complete victory is assured in God alone. The sovereign Savior is the source of victory. And finally, verse 25 reminds us that proper confidence is placed in God alone. Smith writes it this way. The acclamation of joyous confidence in God was meant to encourage the Israelites to make wise choices in their daily lives because one choice will lead them to disappointment and shame while the other choice will result in times of great praise in the presence of God. This dramatic choice faces each person who lives on earth today 
So every person who hears of the righteous deeds of God must realize that their future depends on whether they are willing to turn to God and be saved. Your future depends on turning to God and being saved. The sovereign God of the universe calls you to salvation. So let's look at an action step. I don't know which of these you need to work on. That's up to you. But will you join me in determining to better understand salvation? If you've never turned to Christ and depended on him for your soul salvation from sins, will you determine to better understand that? Come and talk to me. Talk to one of the deacons. Will you determine to better understand worship? Worship is more than happens Sunday morning. Worship is a lifestyle. You need to turn to God to worship God alone. What about victory? We're all facing battles. Is God your source of victory? Ultimately, where is your confidence? Is your confidence in a piece of plastic in your pocket that represents some money or some absence of money in a bank account somewhere? Or is your confidence in the God of the universe who sovereignly rules? Remember, 150 years before it happened, God identified Cyrus. That's the God that we serve, the sovereign God of the universe who has put us here for a purpose, a plan of redemption. It happened that God identified Cyrus by name, but that same God knew you by name long before you came into existence. He had a plan for you long before you came into existence. He had a place where you fit in his grand plan of redemption. Will you determine to place your confidence in that God this week? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are the God who is sovereign. You are the God who could name Cyrus by name long before he ever walked on the earth. And we can stand here today and we can be amazed by that. And we should be amazed by that. But we shouldn't let it stop at just merely being amazed that you did something like that. We should let that impact us and realize that in your sovereignty, you placed us here at this time for a reason. Father, work in our hearts to humbly submit to your plan. Draw us to study your plan, to know it inside and out. I think of Cyrus who, upon reading Isaiah 45, apparently decided he needed to act because he needed to fulfill the prophecy. Lord, you've given us your plan to serve you. I pray that we would read your word and act, that we might fulfill what you have for us. Father, I thank you that you are sovereign. Work in our life 
to accept your sovereign rule and to act on it. In Jesus' name, amen.